0: get finished with what I want to get finished with. Praise God. We're going to do a review from last week and then we'll hit the ground running here this morning and see where God will take us. Praise God. Last week uh, in our review, uh, Abram's faith had been greatly challenged by the unfolding events uh, in which his wife Saria had been taken from him at the hand of the Pharaoh. And he had sought help from his God to gain her back and yet, to look at the situation it was as though God had not heard him it was as though nothing had changed and uh, unknown to Abram even though it looked as though God was not doing anything unknown to him God was on the move God was at work at rectifying the situation that Abram had gotten himself into uh, in 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 all of his major plans that he had tried to make to try to prevent exactly what had happened and yet it happened anyhow and so um, in God's working he had plagued Pharaoh's house with plagues and uh, sores that had resembled leprosy had broken out upon he and, his, and uh, his, his household. The scripture talks about the plague hitting he and his household both and, and a civil rebellion broke out and through this process at last Pharaoh discovered why all of these things had come upon him and, and so he called for Abram to come before him and he restored Sarai to Abram and he let him keep the gifts that he had given him in exchange for, for Sarai. And then he told him to get out of Egypt and don't look back. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. We want you out of here. We don't want you here. Leave. And, of course, that was not a, a struggle for Abram. He couldn't get out of there fast enough. He God had restored everything back to him, and he, he was more than willing to leave Egypt. He couldn't care less about staying there in Egypt. He wanted to get out. He wanted to leave. And so this part of the story reveals an important point to us about God and his judgment as well. Abram had been wrong in his, in his choice to deceive Pharaoh and his decision to make Sarah complicit in, the, in his scheme. But in his situation, it had, done, it had been done as a means to protect himself and to protect those that were with him from the injustice of the Pharaoh towards them. It had been in innocency and in honesty that Abram had done what he had done even though it was wrong and how many of us have ever done things that were wrong we did it innocently we did it with the best of intentions but it still was wrong it's human nature we do that God understands that he knows that we we are not good at judging things okay because we don't know all the facts we don't understand people's motivation we don't understand why they do the things that they do and until we can understand people's motives, which will never be, we don't have a right to judge. But God understands motives, He understands reasons. He understands why we do the things that we do. And that makes Him the perfect judge because He understands why we do what we do. When everybody else around us is scratching their head, why is He doing that? It didn't make any sense. It makes sense to God, He understands. And so, Abram, basically in the innocency of his heart, he was doing this to try to help save all those that he cared about. Now, Abram had already suffered from the fear and the mental abuse and and this great loss that had resulted because of his choices. That's because our choices in life come with our own results. We mentioned that last week. Whether it be blessings or penalties, There are repercussions that are not to be connected with God's judgment against us. There are things that simply happen as a result of, it's a repercussion from the choice that we make. It has nothing to do with God making judgment or passing judgment against us, even though we may think that God doesn't like us anymore because all these things are happening. That's not the case. It's just simply the result of the choice that we made. Choices, every choice we make in life has repercussions that's why it is so important for us to call upon God and to get his understanding and to get his direction because he's going to lead us down a path with good repercussions not bad ones but when we make decisions on our own not knowing the repercussions that are connected to the choices we're about to make we'll wind up making the choices that bring about bad results and then we we wonder why God's turned his back on us we wonder why all these bad things are happening to us well God doesn't love me anymore That's not the case at all. We just simply made a bad choice. And we have to live with the result of those choices. And that's what's happened here with with Abram. He's made some bad choices. He did it in innocency, but you can't cancel out the repercussions from the choices that you make. They're going to happen. They're going to happen. And that's what's going on here in Abram's life. He's not being punished by God he's not under God's judgment he's just simply receiving the repercussions from the choices that he's made then we come to Pharaoh and those events that had occurred to him were in fact God's judgment against him because I guarantee you that Pharaoh had done this more than once this was not the first time that Pharaoh had ever stolen somebody's sister daughter wife whatever he took whatever he wanted this was a common practice So this was not the first time this had happened, but the repercussions that had simply kind of been faded away in in the past, in this situation, it's judgment that God brings. He judges Pharaoh for his actions against Abram. And the reason that God does this is because here Pharaoh is guilty of the abuse of his power against innocent people. He had acted out of a feeling of entitlement. He had the power of supreme leader, and thus he has the entitlement to do whatever he wants to do. And therefore he could take whatever he wants to take, and he did. And he did. But God holds leaders to a higher standard. Since all power and authority comes from God, when those in authority abuse that authority and misuse it to the point where they run roughshod over those who are under their care, it becomes a slap in the face of God. It's not right. God is perceived in bad light because of the abuse of authority. But if those individuals who have been wronged plead their cause to God against those who are in authority, God will hear it and he will bring judgment against them. So in those situations when there are people in authority who take advantage of us, who abuse that authority, and they take things from us that are, that are not theirs to take, they have not been given to them, they just took them, instead of just accepting that as how it has to be, you and I have the opportunity to not let that go. We have an opportunity where we can call on God and we can ask Him, God, this was taken from me. I didn't give it to them. They took it from me and I'd like it back. Get God involved in the situation. His judgment is perfect. His judgment is perfect. And we found out that whenever Abram had left, He got to keep all the things that he had been given as gifts for his wife by the Pharaoh. That was the judgment of God. Because Pharaoh wouldn't have done that if it hadn't been for God impressing upon him this is my guy, you did wrong to him, and you better do it right. You better make things right. We have a God who has our back, let me tell you. And when the enemy tries to take things from us that don't belong to him, guess what? Don't accept that is how it has to end. Call on God, let him get involved in this and say, God, you be the judge in this situation. If if I've been righteous in this and if this has happened and it's been taken from me without me giving it, then I want it back. God will not only restore what has been lost, but he's going to give us interest for the damages that were done because he's just he's just thank God for that thank God for that we have a great God He, he wants us to know this stuff he wants us to understand we don't have to accept all the things that the enemy wants to do and tries to do to us we don't have to accept that we don't if we give him an opportunity he'll restore what was taken and I thank the Lord So the story ends good. It ends on a good note. And thank God for that. And now if you will turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 13. We're going to read the first verse. We're getting out of chapter 12. Now we're going into a new chapter, chapter 13. Man, we're just breezing along, aren't we? (laughs) Chapter 13 in five years. That's good. We're making progress. What was that? Slow-cooked meal. meal. It's pretty slow-cooked, yeah. It's been a while. It's been on simmer for a long time. Genesis chapter 13, the first verse, it says, And Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the south. So this chapter 13 is a continuation of the progression of this story of, of Abram and a special chosen man of God. And the chapter opens with Abram leading all of the souls that had, had come with him into Egypt, that are connected with him. He leads them up and out and away from that dreadful place called Egypt. They just had a traumatic experience in that land, and they couldn't wait to get out of there. And the first part of that verse, Genesis chapter 13 1, says, "...and Abram went up out of Egypt." Abram went up out of Egypt. Now, if, if you look at a topographical map, you'll, you'll discover that quite literally, Abram would have led his entourage up and out of Egypt. And that's due to the fact that in this northern region of Egypt, where this Nile River empties into the Mediterranean, in this northern region of Egypt, the river flows through that into the Mediterranean Sea. That's because this is the lowest point in the land of Egypt. That river is thousands of miles long and it has had to come from a higher place to a lower place. So the whole part of Egypt is descending until it gets down to the place where it empties into the Mediterranean. So literally... He would have been in a low spot in Egypt. But the place that he's going toward is where the mountains are. Mountains are higher than valleys. And this is a low-lying area, so he's leaving a low-lying area, and he's going toward the mountains. So he is literally going up and out of Egypt. this route that he's taking is going to take them to Canaan. And this route is a route that ascends up toward the hills and up toward the mountains of that land. So while they were going up toward Canaan in the literal sense, I don't think that we should rule out the possibility that there could also be something that's connected with this concept of a spiritual nature as well. And we're going to try to connect this aspect to this part of the story about Abram. Now, I looked up the word went that's used here in this verse, the first, this first part of this verse number one here. And it is the Hebrew word Allah. The primary root meaning of that word is to ascend. To ascend. The word itself has a vast number of usages, but the ones that uh, struck a chord of connection with me in relation to this verse number one are, number one, to raise, to recover, and to restore. To raise, to recover, and to restore. I also took a look at the word Egypt. The Hebrew word is mitzraim, which is from the word matsur, meaning defense or fortified, and that word is from the word matsur, meaning a fortress or stronghold, a fortress or stronghold. Now, understanding in a spiritual sense that Egypt is often connected to carnality and therefore the sins that are associated with it, and then applying the definition of stronghold to its spiritual definition or its spiritual link, we could say that spiritually speaking, Egypt might be understood to represent the stronghold of carnality and sin. The stronghold of carnality and sin. Now we just looked at Abram's choice to leave Canaan, and the result had been that out of this descent down into the stronghold of carnality and sin toward in Egypt, we witnessed the repercussions of that. That decision to leave the high ground, the ascended place, and to go down to the stronghold of carnality and sin. It didn't end well. It wasn't going to end well without God intervening. But then thanks to God's plan of, of their deliverance, they're once again set on the road of ascension where God is at work restoring them, raising them up, and moving them toward recovery. And isn't that what God does for us all the time? Anybody here besides me ever fall flat on your face, make, make some really great blunder? And you find yourself wallowing in in the dirt and what does God do when we are at our low point when we are in that place of, dis, of, of descent that low spot in life what, he, what does he do he puts us on a path of ascension that's why we're sitting here today that's why we're in this house right now because he took us at our low point and brought us to a place of ascension leading us up to a place of recovery and restoration. That's what God does. That's what God does. There's actually a beautiful likeness presented within this part of Abram's life story that mirrors the story of another couple that was around in the very beginning of man. And we want to make some comparisons here concerning these two stories. I'm, of course, referring to Adam and his wife Eve way back in the very beginning that we covered a long time ago. And in their story, Adam was created by God and then brought to a special place that God had made just for him, a garden, a paradise called Eden. Now, you won't remember this probably because this has been a long time ago, but when we talked about that earlier on, we talked about that God hadn't made Adam in the garden He had instead made him outside of the garden and the Bible says that he brought him and set him, put him in the garden. If he had made him in the garden, he wouldn't have had to put him in the garden. He would have already been there. But the way it's written, it tells us that he was made, created somewhere outside the garden and when he was made, God had made the garden and he brought him and put him in the garden. So he was created, made somewhere else and brought into the garden paradise Abram was born in another place but God had brought him to that special place called Canaan this land flowing with milk and honey another paradise very similar connection while in that paradise Adam and God were able to be closely connected to one another They could be said to have developed a relationship of friendship. God coming each day to commune with him. The scripture talks about the voice of the Lord walking in the cool of the day. Communing, wanting to commune and have fellowship with Adam. So they had a close relationship as they were together there in the garden. While Abram was in the land of Canaan, this place of paradise that God had brought him into, God had come to him and showed himself as friend to friend. We just talked about that not too long ago. Another similarity. Now back in the garden, everything was wonderful until one day Adam was brought face to face with a situation that had demanded that he make a decision That was of the life and death variety. His wife had offered him the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it was up to him to make the choice and make the decision what do I do about this? And it was a matter of life and death because God had told him if you partake of the tree of life, the the fruit from the tree, you will die. So it was life and death. The choice that he had to make was life and death. What about Abram and the famine? Abram was brought, while he was in that same land, that same paradise, he was met with a life and death situation. The famine had broken out that was so intense that people could have died from it. So he's met with a life and death situation. Do I trust what God is trying to do with me, or do I make my own choice? Does Adam trust God and his words, or does he make his own choice? Very similar situations. And then the choice uh, that Adam had made moved him out of that place that God had prepared for him and brought him into, and the result was that Adam was set on a path that took him down on a descent into the stronghold of carnality and sin. Does that sound familiar? Because the choice that Abram had made also caused him to descend and to go down into the stronghold of carnality and sin. And the beautiful thing is that God was determined not to leave Adam there in that carnal stronghold ruled over by a corrupt ruler who took Abram's promise and blessings from him. Now the Pharaoh had taken Sarai away from Abram. She was intricately connected to Abram's promise from God of great blessing. But God would not leave Abram without having this hope of this blessing being restored. And finally, one day, the plan of God would be enacted and everything would be restored. Adam and all would be released from the stronghold and set on a course of ascension that would return him to that land that was promised him wealthier than he had ever been before. And God delivered Abram. He restored the promise and blessing and and put him on the road to ascension wealthier than he had been. I think there are just too many parallels here for this to be coincidence. I think God is trying to share some things with us and while I was making these comparisons and connecting these dots together uh, between this story of Adam in the beginning and Abram here in Genesis chapter 12 and then in Genesis chapter 13 and 1, I was struck with yet another similar situation from yet another story in the scripture. Now in our story here in Genesis 12, Abram had taken all of his family that were on the journey with him into Egypt because of a severe famine that had struck Canaan. But in Egypt, there was yet plenty. Only a few generations later, we're introduced to this other story that I'm talking about here right now. And that involves the future descendants of Abram. This story dealt with the grandson of Abram. His name was Jacob. But later on it was changed to Israel by God. But this grandson of Abram also found the need to leave Canaan due to a very severe and lengthy famine. He too had moved his family and all that he had down into Egypt where there was plenty, plenty to be found. Then looking back here at Abram again, in the story of Abram's entering into Egypt, there had been made the use of deceit against the Egyptians as a means of providing the securing of the well-being of Abram and his family. He had used deceit as a weapon, as a tool of getting down into Egypt. We look at the story of Jacob, or Israel, who had also entered Egypt, and in his story there had likewise been the use of deceit. The first deceit was the deceit of the sons against Jacob, their father, concerning the fate of their brother Joseph. They had deceived their father into thinking that he was dead, that they had killed him, or that not they had killed him, but a lion had killed him. And so deceit was used, and that deceit had sent their brother down into Egypt to prepare for the rest of them coming down. They had set the stage unknowingly for their entering into Egypt. Secondly, the deceit of Joseph himself unto the Egyptians for the well-being of his family. Now when, when his family was finally brought to Egypt, they come into Egypt, he had spoken with his father and told him, "Now when Pharaoh asks you what your occupation is, you tell him that you're shepherds." because they hate shepherds. They despise shepherds. And they will give you the best land to get you far, as far away from them as they can get you, which happens to be the best land in all of Egypt, Goshen. So you tell them this. You deceive Pharaoh. Now I'm going to set the stage for you. I'm going to go down and talk to Pharaoh and tell him what you are, that you're, that you're actually just shepherds. But when they ask you, you've got to back me up on this. You've got to back me up. You've got to tell them that you're shepherds. Because he wanted them to have the best land of Goshen. So deceit is used here as well. As far as Abram is concerned also, Egypt had conspired for the purpose of taking Abram's wife from him. She represented everything that was precious and dear to him. And through her fruitfulness there would be issued forth promise and blessing that would far outlive his life. We come back to the story of Jacob. And in the story of Jacob, we also find that Egypt conspired once again to rob not only Jacob of his inheritance, but through Jacob to steal the promise and the blessing away from Abram, which God had made to him. Egypt did this through its efforts to attack his fruitfulness, the Pharaoh proclaimed an edict that every male child that was born would be put to death. He was taking the promise. Trying to take the promise. In the story of Abram, we get to witness God step in and use the means of Pharaoh's interference with his plan for the promise of fruitfulness to Abram to become the very vehicle that would in the end produce their freedom. And then here in the story of Jacob, what had God used as the vehicle of his deliverance of Jacob or Israel out of Egypt? The promise of fruitfulness to both Abram and Jacob had been threatened by Pharaoh. And out of his edict to have all Hebrew male children born, put to death, Moses was a product of that effort by Pharaoh and it became Moses who would lead the people to freedom. Back to Abram, it had been through the use of plagues that God had Softened the heart of Pharaoh and solved the matter of his resistance to releasing Abram and all of those that were associated with him to freedom. Scripture talks about plagues. It would also be that God working by way of plagues would likewise eventually soften the heart of Pharaoh and solve his resistance to this releasing of Israel and all of those that are associated with him to their freedom. And then Pharaoh had sent Abram away from Egypt, a richer man than he had been before he had entered. And upon leaving Egypt, Abram was said to have gone up. He had left that bastion of carnality that he had gone down into. And with the help of God, he was set on that road of ascension that would lead him toward becoming a more spiritually inclined man. And when God had delivered Israel from Egypt, They too had been set on a new road. The road they had taken uh, to enter into Egypt, that road that took them down into the very stronghold of carnality was exchanged for that new road that would take them up. They were set to travel the path of ascension that led them away from carnality and away from sin toward them becoming a more spiritually inclined people, able to exhibit the traits of God instead of what those traits were that they learned in Egypt. It took them a long time to get those traits that they learned in Egypt out of them. But God took them on that road of ascension. This, soar, this story that we've just talked about here these uh, in uh, in Genesis uh, chapter 12 and, and the first part here of chapter 13, talking about Abram. This represented the beginning of the implementation of the plan of God that would eventually fulfill the promise that he had made way back in Genesis 3.15 where he told the serpent what was going to happen to him. You're going to bruise his heel but he's going to crush your head. This was the beginning of the implementation that was going to fulfill that plan. But this same story also foreshadowed the fulfillment of God's promise to Abram that his descendants... Would settle in Canaan and that they would increase in numbers to such a degree so as to seem an innumerable amount. When estimated uh, that when Israel moved out of Egypt, it had been, it's been said that their numbers, the number of Israelites, would have been around 4 million, and that an additional 2 million servants uh, who had descended from those servants that had entered Egypt with Jacob and his family also would have left with them. So close to six million souls would have walked out of Egypt free. That's quite, quite a sea of people. That is almost an innumerable amount. We uh, got to go down to, this has been years ago, back when they used to have what they called the the VP Fair. It changed it now to Fair St. Louis. Um, But we went down there. And we went down there on a day when they said the crowd was estimated between 350 and 400,000 people. And I'm telling you, you could not go anywhere without bumping into somebody because you were that close. There were people right next to you. Everywhere. Literally, you had to push your way and move your way through a crowd to get anywhere. You couldn't even see where you were going because of all the people. They took an aerial view of that. They took a picture of that and everywhere you could look in downtown was people. There was not an empty spot, an open spot anywhere. It was people. And that's 300,000, 400,000 people. We're not talking 6 million. It would take you a long time to count the 300,000, but 6 million, it looks to be such a vast number you can't even count them. And didn't, that, didn't God say that he was going to bless... Abram, with descendants so large you couldn't count them? This was a nation of people that came out of the nation of Egypt. A nation. A nation. So Abram was able to leave Egypt with everything that was his, including his wealth, and nothing and no one was left behind, thanks to the intervention of God. His nephew Lot had gone into Egypt with Abram, and he too had left with, uh, with his uncle and headed back to Canaan. God had performed a miracle and God had saved him and blessed him richly. Now I want us to read uh, verse number two here because it tells us something more about Abram. It says in verse number two in chapter 13 here of Genesis, it says, and Abram was very rich in cattle and silver and in gold. He was very rich. And when I I, I looked up the word rich, and that word is the Hebrew word kabed. And it means to be loaded down and abounding with great wealth. So we're not talking a little bit. We're talking what we would call an ungodly amount of wealth. We're talking scads, lots and lots and lots and he was rich he was rich it goes on to tell us that he had all sorts of domesticated animals and if you read in in verse chapter 16 of verse of chapter 12 in in genesis it talks about this abundance of the different kinds of domesticated animals but there's also an army of servants that now belong to him and then top it all off He's also said to have monetary wealth in the form of silver and gold. So he doesn't just have animals that he can sell. He also has the purchasing power. He's got silver and he's got gold. It's amazing that silver and gold have been that, uh, that monetary exchange that's uh, been around since those early days and it still is today. Silver and gold, you got that? You still got some money. It's still worth something. It's still valuable, even today. It still means you've got some wealth if you get enough of it. If you get enough of it. This information, I believe, tells us something about God, and and that is that God does not hold grudges. Humans do. God doesn't. God does not hold grudges. He's not one who's just always looking for ways to punish us when we mess up. There's a lot of people in our world today that believe that that's what God's like. He just gets his jollies off whenever we make a mistake so he can just knock us in the head. That is so far removed from the truth. That's a bull-faced lie. God is not that way at all. He does not like to punish us. He does not like to see bad things happen to us. That is not God. Get that out of your mind, erase it, push it far away until he'll ever let it come back in because that is not who God is. It's not him at all. Had Abram made a mistake at this point in his story? Yeah, yeah. He sure did and the mistake had been huge. Now God could have taken most of Abram's wealth away from him and just allowed him to leave Egypt with his wife and just enough possessions to sustain him. He could have done that. And people today would say he would be justified in doing that. That's probably what he should have done. But that's not God. That's not God. It demonstrates to us that God is not interested in punishing us. What he is interested in, however, is in teaching us. He wants to teach us to teach us. Sometimes his teaching in our lives will of necessity involve a bit of punishment. But I want you to listen very carefully to this. But if the means of punishment is not a part of the solution to teach, uh, to teach and to instruct us, then you can be sure that God will not resort to its use. He does not punish us just to be punishing us. He only, listen to this, He will only punish us when it brings instruction. And if punishment in the situation does not do that, we will not be punished. Okay? I hope you get that. I hope you understand that. Because just because you do wrong does not guarantee you that God is going to punish you unless punishment is needed to correct us, to instruct us, then the punishment will come. And it has a use. Now, in in human thinking, we punish regardless of whether it brings instruction or not. A lot of times we punish because we just want to get even. Don't we? Hopefully we don't do that with our kids. Hopefully the punishment of a parent to the child is in relationship to the punishment that God has set for us and that is we only use punishment as a means of teaching and instruction not because we're mad now I've been guilty of that punishing because I was angry and I had to apologize because that's not right according to what God would have us to do it's punishment only connected to are becoming aware and being taught and changed it has to do with instruction and i'm not here to imply that there's never punishment that's going to be meted out to the wicked but but we've got to also realize, as we've talked about before that not everything bad that happens in our life is punishment it's simply it can be repercussions of choices that have been made You know, we can become so confused about God and the way that he interacts with us in our lives. And and I believe that the main reason that God seems sometimes to make no sense to us is because of the way that we come to perceive him. And And that is that we try to understand God by forcing him into a human mold. By our believing that God should react to various events and circumstances in the way that we think he should. But is God like us? Oh he is so far he is so far beyond us in a good way in a perfect way he is so much better than we are in all his ways he is nobody nobody is like him nobody i say thank god that he's not human in the sense that uh, of follow humanity Now, he did make Christ human. But look at what he did. He still presented God as God should be presented. But fallen man doesn't bear the likeness of its creator. Only a redeemed humanity can begin to approach a more accurate representation of our God and help us to think more along the same lines as he does. The closer that we can move ourselves his direction, the more we're going to be able to appreciate his thoughts and his actions toward us. And the same holds true of the opposite side of the coin, and the farther we move away from him, the less understanding we become concerning his thoughts and actions toward us. So if you want to understand God, get closer to him. The farther away you get, the harder it is, and the more impossible it becomes. So instead of us understanding how much God loves and cares for us as we've moved farther away from him, we grow convinced that he has abandoned us. He's left us on our own because he no longer feels the same way about us. When the actual truth is that it wasn't God who moved away from us, we moved away from him. Our thoughts about him and toward him changed while his thoughts toward us and his hope and his purpose for us never moved and never changed and never will because that's God because that's God so we were able to see that God didn't change his attitude toward Abram even though Abram had been in the wrong but we get to witness that our man Abram came up out of Egypt a changed man from the one who had gone Down into Egypt. I believe that one of the main reasons that Abram had not experienced some punishment from God for his mistakes was that his mistake had been allowed to change him. How we approach the repercussions that happen based on the decisions and choices we make makes a difference if we allow those things that we have chosen to do that have that were wrong and that we accept the repercussions and don't blame God in it don't blame everybody else but take the blame say it's me I'm the one that did it I'm the one that chose this is on me and God I'm sorry I don't want to be like this I, I want to change I don't want to I don't want to embrace this new me I want to be a different person what need does he have to punish us we've already learned the lesson because that's what he's really interested in is us learning the lesson he knows we're going to make mistakes but it's how those mistakes affect us it's how we allow them to impact our lives how are we going to perceive it? What are we going to do about it? Are we going to blame everybody else? Like King Saul? It was always everybody else's fault. Never his. Look what happened to him. He never changed. He never got better. He only got worse. And the more we allow our, uh, our, our lives to be ruled by not accepting the blame by not accepting the consequences, the worse and worse we will become. But if we're willing to accept what we've done and ask God to help us not to be that way anymore, not to repeat that again, help us to learn from this, help us not to be devoted to this new life that we're finding ourselves. We've already learned well, we've needed to learn from that, and we can move on, and God wants us to move on. It's vitally important. It's vitally important. Do we readily understand and then accept where the guilt lies? Or do we start looking around for a scapegoat to pin it on? Does it become everyone else who is to blame except us? Is that how we perceive these repercussions that happen in life. How we answer that question is important because it's going to determine whether we need chastisement from God to elicit this change in us or if we've learned the lesson that we've needed to learn move forward. God wants us to be able to move past the mistake. To move forward into a continued progress on the path of God that's going to that he's going to set before us and what he wants us to take. And we have everything to say about that. Everything to say about that. And I want us to pray that God would help us to understand who he really is today and understand that we have an ability to change So many things that happen in our lives. So many bad things that happen in our lives if we're willing to learn the lessons. Praise God, let's pray. Lord, thank you today.